It's Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson. Today, Michael Pearson and the dirty word he uses to describe the current economic system. It's the Greek word, krematistike. Krematistike being basically the system that we have right now, which is out there to make money. Human beings are becoming slaves to the system. We have to conform to what business wants. And we don't really understand that we are the ones that create business. And that business should serve us. Pearson is an expat from the business world. He is an assistant professor of management systems at Fordham University's Graduate School of Business and the College of Business Administration. He's a founding member of the Humanistic Management Network. It's a six-person collective of scholars and consultants thinking up ways to foster what they call a human-centered economic system. The vision, as articulated on the network's website, is a global economy in which all stakeholders are equally respected so that market mechanisms are applied to maximize societal benefits rather than individual profits. Pearson himself studies trust and well-being in business organizations. He says he was just a kid when he decided he wanted to go into business. I was always interested in the ways people have impact on the world and the kind of people that were highlighted in the media, by radio, by print. And many of them seem to be, I don't know, the rich and famous. And I was reading about that. And I was like, okay, what, what is it that people find so fascinating? And uh, You were reading about this when you were like... When I was 10, 12, 13, something like that. And I remember at one point, I was just like, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Those people get something done. As he went through school, declared his interests, he got the feeling that other people didn't share his romantic view of business. I was already clear that there is something that's not really optimal about the way that business is run because so many people around me were cynical and they hated business and they hated me for being interested in business. Really? Yeah, so... After university, Pearson worked as a business consultant, streamlining operations of for-profit businesses. His job was to tell the organization how to better manage itself, how to manage its people. Like, why are people mistrusting each other? Why is leadership not very effective at getting things done? How do we need to foster communication and maybe um, build teams in, in many of these organizations that had trouble? And one of the core issues that came up over and over and over was that people are just not trusting each other. There were sort of hidden agendas about everything. There were people mistrusting any kind of communication that came, up from, uh, came down from the top that created a very ineffective environment. For Pearson, trust in an organization was desirable because it was more efficient. The more efficient the organization, the more profitable the organization. But then Pearson branched out a little bit in his consulting. He started advising more for government agencies. And there, Pearson says, people treated each other totally differently. For one thing, they trusted what their coworkers told them and what their bosses told them. And then Pearson worked for the Secretary of State Hillary Clinton's first Senate campaign in New York. There, trust was even more important. For me, it was interesting to see a different world because... Um, People there were not even paid to do something, oftentimes. And why would you? In an economic mindset, that's just impossible to to understand. Why would people go spend time for somebody that they might not even have met and, and, and work for them so that they get elected? That's sort of, that escapes the economic logic. But it's something that 
provides insight into human nature in some way, how we are motivated, why we're motivated. And I think that many businesses could learn from the political environment. That also probably explains why I went back to academia to study that more. Why, why did you head towards academia? Was it because you were interested in research or because you were tired of business culture? What, what was it? Well, in some way, yeah, the consulting world was sort of seemed glamorous to MBAs it's, or business people. It's sort of held up as a, a high prestige uh, job. It pretended to allow for curiosity and freedom and coming up with something new and creative, etc. That was actually not really the case. And Why not? It's just that most of these organizations have a very cookie-cutter approach to problems. And so they just use that, and there is no questioning of that. Was there was there a moment where you had to kind of apply the cookie cutter and you just thought oh, I'm yeah. not going to Yeah, yeah. That's when that's when we then had to deal more with the implementation aspect which I thought was interesting in the beginning because that was something of course as a student that you oftentimes don't do. It was interesting for the first 3 times we had to do it. I was like, okay, well, I don't know. It just it didn't allow me to develop some of the thoughts that I I had. And also I felt like some of my other colleagues that I'm working with now, is that the whole idea to make more profit for some firm and that those consultancies are run for profit, of course, <laughs> wasn't really something that was in line with my perspective of the world. It was impactful possibly to some extent, but I don't know what kind of impact it created. And I felt I wanted to have a more meaningful ambition for myself uh, to work towards. And science sort of provides that in a way that you're trying to find ways to improve uh, the state of the world if if you're doing good science, I think. <laughs> and this is what you're doing now, this like management science, this like right. social science. Social science in a way in, informed by psychology, sociology, political science, with the goal to help transform, I guess. It's kind of an activist agenda, possibly. The way that we provide services and products in our in our societies, the way the engine of our society runs. And I think uh, right now it's not doing all the things that we asked it to do. Uh, originally, the economy was sort of set up and designed to provide well-being uh, and happiness uh, in the end or help that goal. And if we're looking at the evidence right now, we're not doing too well in that sense. And definitely we're not doing that over, all too well for in a sustainable way, like what we're experiencing or um, benefiting from, maybe the next generation can't. That's what I'm focused on and hope to provide some answers or some solutions and work with colleagues towards that. You're the co-founder of the Humanistic Management Network. Right. A group of five academics and one consultant. Yeah. Consultants, we all probably had some consulting background and then turned academic. <laughs> Are you all kind of kindred spirits in that way? Yeah, like I guess so. I guess so. We're in business and yeah. left. Right. Mm -hmm. And and still fascinated by the power of business uh, and trying to rethink ways that we can use that power and harness that power. It's a positive force. It can be a positive force. So together with, I guess, an expanded group of maybe 200 people right now are working on different projects academically and um, uh, practically. So we have some practitioners in there and we have policymakers that we want to expand more into that area uh, to actually think about ways that we can structure um, policy 
towards a more what we call life-conducive economic system. And that's the mission of the Humanistic Management Network. Right, right. To help enable a life-conducive economic system, right? Does that mean that... I mean, you use a line from Pythagoras. You use this line from the pre-Socratic Greek philosopher, right. man is man, man is, is the, the measure, measure of all, all things. That's basically, I think, the humanistic uh, mantra, even though my philosopher friends say that might not be the best to use, but we're sort of um, going for the what we were thinking, life-conducive, or to create an oikonomistic system the way Aristotle originally intended it to be, which is... Oikonomia is the Greek word. Oikonomia is the... Right. And and basically, he already distinguished between oikonomia and krematistike, krematistike being basically the system that we have right now, which is out there to make money. Sheer money-making. Sheer money-making. Sheer money-making. And you already said that's what happens sometimes, but it's, it's, not the, it's not the thing that really renders and creates happiness. And... His idea of a good life and a good system of um, conducting uh, business or conducting the household then would be uh, oikonomia, which was to serve oidemonia, which is happiness, right? It should create happiness. And if we look at the data right now, I mean, it's very interesting. And many economists have looked at that now, and it's increasingly interesting to see how the economists are already seeing how fallible their thought or how problematic their thinking is and has been, they see there is no real correlation between uh, GDP growth and growth in well-being. So what originally was intended to promote well-being is actually not doing that. It's sort of, we're, we're not even, we're, we're creating problems for our environment, we're, pro- we're creating problems for our society, but we always sort of seem to justify, yeah, but that's because we, we, we need to be happy or we want to be rich or something, or that's the American life. But somehow that doesn't hold up empirically. Most people are not happier than before. And uh, actually, it seems that some people are less happy. If you look at the rate of depression and all these things, uh, many people are very cynical. So the question is, what what's wrong here? Uh, and what is the role of the economic system in that? The point or the uh, starting point of the Humanistic Management Network is really to help understand how we can create a true economistic system that helps happiness that creates life conducive uh, circumstances that enable human flourishing i guess where we see right now that most of this is not necessarily done that way it's more it resembles the crematistic approach in which profit dominates and we're sort of we're becoming human beings are becoming slaves to the system we have to conform to what business wants and we don't really understand that we are the ones that create business and that business should serve us. And so if you look at the graduates here or anywhere, it's like, yeah, you have to learn these skills to be employable and you have to do this. And this is what the what the market wants. And it's, yeah, well, that's that's probably true. But we rarely ask the question, what is it that the market can offer to you in your personal development? What is it that the per- who is the person that you want to become and really try to switch uh, the priorities and see that maybe human flourishing is something more important than being employable. It's certainly important to earn your living, but there might be different ways of doing so and maybe there are ways that help human flourishing more so than we currently see. Michael Pearson of Fordham University's Graduate School of Business and the College of Business Administration. Stay tuned for Cityscape at 7.30. George Bodarkey explores the issue of women in traditionally male blue-collar jobs. That's Cityscape at 7.30.
I'm Mary Wilson, and this is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. My guest is Michael Pearson, who worked for several years as a business consultant, but left behind consulting to do research on management. Now he finds himself making the case that an economic system which puts profits before human well-being is a doomed system. He makes reference to studies showing that well-being is not tied to income alone and asks if this is true. Why would we want an economic system that puts profits first? That that idea that GDP uh, cannot be plotted directly next to um, human flourishing. Right. That I that idea sounds like it could be the new insight here. Uh-huh. But there are insights in these papers that you write that are written for, I assume, biz- other business <laughs> academics, other right. people in social science. And the the ideas there seem much more basic. They seem uh-huh. much less new. It's things like, you know that saying, like, everything I needed to know I learned in kindergarten? Uh-huh, uh-huh. They seem, like, basic, like, golden rule type sure, stuff. Sure, absolutely, yeah. I couldn't tell if it's because it's been translated into, you know, business terms, which is what you'll find in any academic paper, mm. you know, the you know the the, the historian's, you know, paper right, is have in their histor- own Yeah, they, right. everybody mm-hmm. has their own jargon. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I was struck by like I'll give you a, an example. So there's one paper um, I think this was the MIT Sloan Management Review. I mean, maybe you want to set up this paper. This was a paper you wrote in 2008. Right, it came out in 2008. It was part of my dissertation where I examined uh, ways to that businesses can confront the the increasing mistrust that they're facing from their stakeholders. So I was trying to establish a trust measurement, a stakeholder trust measurement, and that would then help corporate boards to sort of strategically think about how to increase trust levels, possibly. And yes, I I remember that you said <laughs> this is so this is so basic, and it is very basic. Well, some of it, it was is, stuff like. Google, Google's agreement with China in Mm -hmm. in the China market Mm -hmm. to censor itself. You know, when you look up the, you know, Tiananmen Square, like, you're not going to get everything. And that was called, and you said, and that that upset a lot of people, and that's because um, the term was value congruence. Right, value congruence. Which I, go ahead, go ahead. No, well, I would have just called it, I mean, if I were just, you know, telling the story to, you know, just somebody you know, over coffee, I would have just said, Google's not towing its own line. Google's acting like a hypocrite. Huh. Yeah, sure. You know, and and it was just interesting to see it, oh, that's what it looks like in business speak. Right, right, of course. I think you're right. I mean, that's what people say. We're trying to sort of condense it in a way that possibly business people can understand it. I mean, what the problem seems to be in the business world is that, yes, all these kindergarten rules or maybe the golden rule that seems so evident to us that we are learning in Sunday school or something, they don't apply in the economic world most of the time. And I don't know if you've come across people that say, okay, well, this is Sunday school, but this is business. And business is something else. Uh, If you do business, if you're in business, there is no such thing as a concern for the other person. What we need to do is reduce cost and things like that. So it seems like there is a different world or there are different worlds. And what we're finding is that well, those worlds are not different. It's human beings. It's they're, they're reacting the same way in any aspect of human interaction, whether it's business or whether it's uh, social or whether it's in church. Or anything like that. If there are people that are perceived as hypocrites, you don't trust them. 
what we learn in marketing more strategically oftentimes is how you can best cheat people, basically. I'm using plain speak. Marketing scholars probably would not agree with that directly. But yes, how can you convince people? How can you sort of lead them towards something that they might not want to do by themselves? And in many ways, that is considered untrustworthy by people, by normal people. <laughs> And uh, so no wonder that businesses face so much mistrust because many of their practices are not corresponding with the values that normal people have. What seems to be the case is that when you go into business education, I'm being a bit heretical here, but yeah, you sort of, you learn to not be concerned with those traditional values, with the Sunday school values. Yes, and there are classes that specifically teach you about the nature of human beings and how they are. Like the homo economicus is somebody that is very different from the people that uh, that you meet around in the in the world. So it's like Yeti, I don't know, the snowman that everybody talks about, but nobody has seen, right? But we're still building our theoretical, economical, or economic uh, theory on, on this assumption of the snowman, of homo economicus, that the person is totally rational, that the person is totally self-interested, that the person is only maximizing his or her own utility and has perfect information about everything. That's what business people think or are led to think, and that's how they come up with strategies and how they create business organizations, and that's very different, of course, from many other realms of, of social life. Now, what I've tried to do is to go through the lens of trust, which seems to be the basis of successful cooperation. That economists understand. So they understand that trust is important, but they don't understand how you create trust. They would sort of, they allow, and I think agency theory is sort of the best expression for that. They allow opportunism. They assume opportunism. They assume that I'm going to do the best for myself always. These things seem to be very, very uh, basic. But they become less basic once you're talking about them in an economic setting or maybe in a business organization. And I think I invite everybody to think about how they have experienced their business organization or their organization, how much trust they have towards people leading the organization. The service that we have found is that most people are really not that trusting. And, and there is a systemic problem behind it. It's that assumption of opportunism, that basically people are out there for themselves. Business organizations are out there for themselves. They're only concerned about profit. And if I assume that, of course, if I assume that somebody else is out for profit, then I'm not going to be very motivated to help that organization. I'm not willing to be engaged. I'm not willing to be creative for this organization. And that's one of the biggest mysteries, it seems, that employees are not very highly engaged. And Gallup says that there's about more than 70% of people in the workplace are not engaged. They are either just checking in and coming there for the money, <laughs> or they actively sabotage the organization. In terms of dollars, this is a huge waste. It's in economic speak, this is a waste of resources. And so we need to be concerned about that. Is that the best way to bring the point home to somebody who's, you know, a business executive that it's a waste of resources? Is it just as likely that they'll listen to an argument for human flourishing? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. Unfortunately not. Yeah, it's the cost. It, you have to make the cost argument. That's the way they've been trained. And that's the reason why they're up there. At least in many of the publicly traded organizations, 
financial traders and financial analysts, and I'm making broad overgeneralizations, of course, there, there are exceptions, but most of the CEOs that you meet, they're there because financial analysts agree with them that they will provide short-term increases of shareholder value. That is something very difficult to create, apparently, with a more humanistic outlook, so the thinking goes. Ethics and business don't go together. You and disagree. I, I do disagree, and there is good am and ample empirical evidence that that's not the case. The most successful and most sustainable economic organizations and the most profitable organizations are the ones where leaders are concerned about these things, where the worlds are not different, where people are people, <laughs> and where they're concerned about human flourishing. And their, their services, their products actually help create human flourishing. And you mentioned Google. Google is one of those. That's why it's so highly trusted. But that's the fact that they at one point compromised that unspoken motto of theirs in terms of do no harm created a lot of issues for them. And it also, they said, created economic loss. They were doing this so that they wouldn't be hurt or that they would gain economically. But it turns out that going against those values hurts them. And I think one of the ways to understand that is that they lost trust of many of the stakeholders and they weren't willing to cooperate as much anymore. You write about social entrepreneurship, mm -hmm. which would be, I guess, the model for a business that sought to be in equal part driven by profits and also by delivering social value, social right. goods. Right. This notion of social entrepreneurship is, is an interesting evolution in, in economic thinking, integrating some of the public uh, or political uh, science. It's probably a reaction to the overemphasis on profit in the traditional entrepreneurship world. You think it's a movement of backlash? Uh, yeah, I think so. Now, I'm more interested in how it could serve as a synthesis of a new way of organizing. You, you said it's parallel. It's uh, profit and uh, social good. I think it's the priority is social good, and then the profit can come from it. So it's really profit is a means towards another end. Now, they're not this, too parallel they're endeavors. They're not, not parallel. No, they're not parallel. And I think that's many people think, yeah, you, you can't do social good profitably. Or uh, profit, if you do profit, then it's actually not going to be good uh, for society, right? But that's, that's this instinctive mistrust reaction towards businesses that I think needs to be overcome as well. Because, yes, there is a lot of good that can be created through business. Not if it's done in the crematistic way where basically business is out to make money, but if business is out there to solve a social problem or any kind of problem, an environmental problem, then it's very likely that people who think that is indeed a problem want to solve it. So when they want to solve it, they're probably willing to spend money on it. So there is a value proposition out there, and people can make money that way. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. I'm Mary Wilson. Michael Pearson is my guest and assistant professor of business management systems at Fordham, where he studies trust and well-being. He says he doesn't see enough of either in the businesses who seek profits more avidly than solutions. But he observes a new kind of business forming, which falls somewhere between the for-profit and non-profit categories. There are people involved in what they call the fourth sector, fourth sector organizations. They call them for-benefit 
which is basically includes profit or profitability, but it creates social good beyond profit. And so, so does that mean it's is it investing even more than it makes? What does that mean? No, no, no. It's, no, no, no. It means that they can very well. I mean, for example, microcredit. Mohamed Yunus, the Grameen Bank, uh, the founder of the Grameen Bank, Yunus, he's sort of propagating a model that's called social business, where there is a no loss, but there is a, a no dividend. The whole focus of this business would be to solve a social problem like malnutrition or maybe the difficult access to credit for people in poverty. And so he creates these kind of businesses to really solve a problem sustainably. That means it's funded for so there is a profit or there's a surplus in some way, but it all goes back to furthering the organizational goals. It doesn't go back to the investors, right? So that's a model of a fourth sector organization. But there are others out there. They might not be that prominent, but I think there is already a critical, maybe yeah, a building mass of people or a, a group of people that's going into that direction. I'm curious about that because... A book that has been published by the Humanistic Management Network. Mm. Um, it's called Humanism in Business. It's right. this book, and it addresses how humanism has been expressed in the past with just you know historic developments of institutions. Mm -hmm. And so, a couple cited examples are um, this is pretty American centric, but <laughs> the American Revolution is mm -hmm. cited as one. The U.S. Constitution right. is cited as another, and these are called turning points, political mm -hmm. institutions who were made more humanistic. Right. They were made to create more human flourishing, right? That's the reason why people fled towards America, because they wanted to build a different kind of society that wasn't repressive. You mentioned critical mass. So I'm wondering if, I mean, does it feel to you like like we're in the middle of a turning point now where business is going to, more businesses are going to move into the, what did you call it, the fourth sector? Right. I think the transformation is going on. It's silent. It's silent. And there is a huge potential to be captured by smart and enlightened business people or policy people uh, that can sort of view the current problems as opportunities. And there is not that critical mass yet that actually shifts the entire system, no. But I'm hopeful that there will be because the problems are so big and many people are very aware that we need to change something. I don't know yet totally how we can, but nobody does. So it's really a collective effort. It needs to be a collective effort on how it can be done. And so that's where we're trying to give some guidance and possibly help see what's what's possible and what's out there. You teach classes. I'm wondering, do you, do you ever find yourself teaching one thing and thinking another? No, but I'm sometimes thinking maybe I should pretend to be thinking something else or somehow, well, let me see. What do you mean by that? Well, they're specifically here uh, in the undergrad program. There are many people that are very influenced by finance and accounting models. And those are the two disciplines that are basically influenced by economic thinking. The economistic that everybody thinking, is the crematistic, crematistic approach. Profit is king. So and that's a big th influence here. That's a very big influence here, despite the heritage of Fordham being a Jesuit school, which is aiming at something much larger than, than profit. But uh, you get into discussions with uh, students that just have learned that, yes, profitability is the measure of all success. And that most of the time you can't be nice to people around the world. You can't focus on any kind of problem or social problem because that would not be profitable. So what do you say? When you well, I can't say much. I just wish sometimes I would think that way too because then I wouldn't have the pain of listening to it. But, 
but I'm I'm but, I'm I trying mean, I'm trying to 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 give some of the examples and the, cite the evidence which points to the contrary. Now, that is probably not changing much because there is so much instruction to think otherwise. And actually, the Aspen Institute did a survey on people going into business schools and their values and their concern for societal problems and issues and the people coming out of business school, and it's a big drop. I mean, people come into business schools, maybe 30 or 40 people, 30 or 40% of people actually think about social problems as, as an issue that need to be addressed by business. And then when they come out, it's maybe 10 or 15. I might not be entirely right about the numbers now, but there is a drop. And in some way, What do you make of it? Do you think education? they've been educated out of it? Sure. Or do you think that they're just it's, kids it's, who want to get a job? Well, whatever it is. I mean, if they think that they get a job by thinking that way, then I think it's it's indicative of the problems that we have. Uh, and that's that's what you're we referring to before, the difference of the business world versus the normal social world. It's like the business training in many ways is training you to think differently and become less concerned with others. Uh, become possibly amoral, maybe immoral or less moral. Michael Pearson is an assistant professor of management systems at Fordham University's Graduate School of Business and the College of Business and Administration. He's organizing a conference on Fordham's Manhattan campus on May 11th, where some real stars of the management theory world will discuss the future of management education. There's more information on the website. It's bnet.fordham.edu slash conference. Thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Well, thank you. And that's it for Fordham Conversations. You can find archived shows on WS wfuv.org or subscribe to our podcast. Become a fan of our Facebook page. Search WFUV's Fordham Conversations. Or you can follow us on Twitter. We're registered as FOCON, F-O-C-O-N. Robin Shannon will be your host next week. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Mary Wilson.